Shimoi, welcome back to the H Hour podcast. Sponsoring the podcast today are Rugby for Heroes. Rugby for Heroes are a not-for-profit organisation who raise money for military charities by organising, fundraising events. They have raised over £112,000 since they were formed back in 2009, and they were formed in the wake of the death of Private Joe Whitaker, who was sadly killed in operations serving with the Parachute Regiment in Afghanistan in 2008. Rugby for Heroes started off doing one event every year, which was a well, the Rugby for Heroes Festival, every year in May at Old Lemontonians RFC, out of which uh, r was founded. They did one event every year for, I think it was 10 years, huge events, super popular events, and, 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 uh, and now have expanded their portfolio of events, portfolio of events, get your words out, portfolio of events to include other stuff, such as beer and gin festivals, and supper clubs, plus obviously the rugby events that they have organised so well over the years. Their next event is going to be held on the 26th of June. That is going to be at Old Lemontonians RSC, and this is going to be a, a, a free event to attend. Going to be rugby going on, all sorts of entertainment, amazing food, and amazing company on the day. So look out for at rugby for heroes on social media rugby number four heroes on on instagram they're on twitter they're on linkedin and on facebook and on their website rugbyforheroes.org for for event details of that next event 26th of june i'm going to be there it's going to be a load of podcast uh previous guests will be there i guarantee they'll turn up mike in fact mike who's at the helm himself is the previous podcast guest so get along 26th of june stick it in your diary thank you rugby for heroes also sponsoring the podcast today are Monkey Mountaineering, a veteran-owned niche adventure travel company. They were founded in 2017 by Sam Marshall and they are now in their fourth year providing mountain-based travel and adventure holidays. The main trips they offer include treks up Kilimanjaro, uh, which is obviously the highest mountain in Africa, also up the highest mountain in Morocco and North Africa, which is Tubkal, and treks up Aconcagua, the highest mountain in South America. They also, if you want, they also offer treks to Everest Base Camp. Amazing. And they've recently added other treks in Nepal to their portfolio, including a trip to climb Mirror Peak, which is at, it's nearly six and a half kilometers high, and it's the highest trekking peak in Nepal. Sam has been a, a mountaineer for over 30 years, and during his service in the army, he was lucky enough to be involved in expeditions to climb hardcore mountains on every continent. He now uses the skills and experience he gained as a military mountaineer to run his company and help people make lifelong memories through fantastic mountain journeys. Specialising in small group travel, all monkey mountaineering trips are planned with military precision and focused on exceeding customer expectations. And all the trips can be made bespoke and customised as required. Sam also delivers UK-based challenge events such as the National Three Peaks or the Yorkshire Three Peaks. So if you're looking for a challenge or want to raise money for a charity, then give him a shout. He also provides mountain skills training such as navigation, wild camping and rock climbing. Full details of Monkey Mountaineering chips can be found at on their website, uh, which is uh, monkeymountaineering.com. They're also on Facebook and Instagram as at monkeymountaineering. Go and check them out. Give them a like. Be inspired by the awesome images from some of their trips. Cheers, Sam, and all of the people at Monkey Mountaineering. 
Also sponsoring the podcast today are the Development Society. The Development Society is a community of people who want to be better than they were yesterday. They are more than just a clothing company. They truly are a community of like-minded people looking to improve. From merchandise where you have to earn it, not simply buy it, to weekly Zoom yoga sessions, they're the best kind of people you can find. They're hard workers. The community is open to all who want to improve. If you want to get involved, join their infamous Daily Waves newsletter and their Slack community. Okay, the Daily Waves newsletter, you sign up to that by going onto their website, which is the developmentsociety.co.uk. Okay, sign up to that newsletter and be incredibly inspired by the high quality information they will send you through. There's no spam, it's all useful stuff. It will help you improve. If you're one of those people who wants to get amongst like-minded individuals, improve your situation, then the Development Society is a great starting point. So they're active on Instagram, they're active on Facebook. Get them on Instagram as at the Development Society and, uh, and follow them. You'll get more of an understanding about their philosophies. In the meantime, in their own words, stay wavy. Finally, sponsoring the podcast today were the Aardvark Group. The Aardvark Group were founded in 1982 and they were done so with the express objective of developing a mechanical landmine clearing system which would meet the design criteria its founders considered to be the prime critical factors, namely for the clearance of all known anti-tank and anti-personnel mines using mechanical and manual means and also for the location, identification and disposal of all munitions and unexploded ordnance. They've been doing this now for decades. They are the best at what they do. They also, a significant proportion of Aardvark Group's manpower, are also ex-military. When they were set up, the company design team found that while the actual flail clearance process, which was traditionally used, would be very effective for both applications of minefield breaching under combat conditions and post-conflict and humanitarian air clearance, the prime mover would need to be unique for each application. So they concentrated the design capabilities on the landmine clearance process which would best suit the post-conflict and humanitarian clearance areas and they chose a rotating chain flail system. They have been deploying that successfully for a long, long time now um, and rightly so because the task to clear the world of landmines is enormous. The Red Cross estimates there's over 110 million landmines knocking about ready to mess someone's day up. Aardvark are at the tip of the spear in helping make the world a better, safer place when it comes to unexploded ordnance and landmines. Find out more about Aardvark at aardvark.group. Check out their online shop. If you're a person who works in post-conflict zones, they may well have things in their shop that you could utilize in your day job. Or in your day job, in your job. I know there's stuff in there that I can 100% use and do 100% use. So, Aardvark.group is the website, and then on social media, look for them. They're the Aardvark Group. Instagram at the underscore Aardvark underscore group. Thank you. On to the podcast. My guest today is Colonel Colonel Rossmoy. He is a, an army doctor. He has done a, a multitude of jobs. He spent time on the uh, medical emergency response team, the MERT, in Afghanistan. He spent time on air ambulances, and namely the Thames Valley Air Ambulance. Uh, he is also a director at, let me get this right. Yeah, he's a director uh, for MERT training at RAF Bryce Norton. So, 
this is a good conversation. He has been working uh, as an army doctor in the NHS for a while now. That's what happens when people aren't on the front line. Need on the front line at like this. They still uh, they go and support other places, especially people as qualified as uh, as Colonel Moy. And I enjoyed this conversation. Learned a lot from about the perspective of operations from a doctor. He also actually interestingly worked as a doc uh, in um, an Iraqi uh, Iraqi prison uh, or a, a British prison in Iraq for Iraqis and uh, insurgents and the like. So yeah. This is a HR podcast. My name is Hugh Keir, and my guest today is Colonel Ross Moy. Enjoy. Dr. Ross Moy. Hello. You're recording. Uh, mate, well, welcome, to, welcome to the HR studio. Uh, and... I think let's let's kick off. I'm interested. Okay. In your experience as an army doctor, yeah, and the experiences you told me about already, which was more challenging for you? Was it was it being a doctor yeah. at a prisoner of war camp, or was it being a doctor on the mert? Oh gosh. Um, Definitely different challenges, I would say. Um, so I was the doctor for the, what was then the divisional internment facility in Iraq on Optelic 9. So that was 2006, 2007. Pull that mic up for me. Yeah, no um, yeah. And yeah, that was ethically really, really challenging. You know, it wasn't very physically challenged. It wasn't very dangerous. I mean, we were getting rocketed a bit, but it wasn't, you know, that nothing like the guys in the, in the city we're dealing with. Um, but the ethics were really interesting and really challenging. So I was a brand new baby doc, pretty much straight out of training. Um, I was the first full-time holder of the job and I pretty much had to design what I did as I went along. So we had a fair number, over a hundred internees who were of various legal statuses. Some of them were proper prisoners of war, but most of them were on a sort of, they were interned for protection of the coalition forces. Um, and explain that. So as I understand it, I'm, I'm not a lawyer is my disclaimer on that one. So because they were not uniform combatants, they could not under the Geneva convention be considered prisoners of war. However, we applied as a matter of policy. We held them as if they were prisoners of war, but their legal status was slightly different. They weren't convicted criminals, but they weren't prisoners of war. They were interned. So that meant the GOC held a, a sort of, secret, I suppose, a, a command council where he would review intelligence evidence. So it wasn't evidence that would stand up in a court. This was evidence that they were perceived to be a threat to coalition forces, and so their continual detention was authorised on that basis. And I believe there was some legal agreement between ourselves and the Iraqi government about how that would, how that would work. My job was to be their doctor. Um, so I'd kind of come through training expecting to be a regimental doc. So I was expecting to be off with a, an infantry or an armoured regiment and being their doctor, you know, 600, 400, 600 healthy, fit guys and girls uh, doing their, their stuff. And then all of a sudden I was looking after a bunch of middle-aged Iraqis, uh, working through interpreters, guys with chronic health problems, uh, and also the, a lot of it, I mean, there's lots of physical problems, you know, lots of diabetes, lots and lots of other issues there but lots of psychological stuff i mean these guys weren't weren't psychologically well um you know we had and we had all sorts we had some really properly nasty people who'd definitely sort of masterminded unpleasant criminal activity i mean i obviously have no idea what these guys had actually done you know as the doc i find the easiest way to keep your head clear on this stuff is just not to know so i knew what category they were held under we had there were four categories of risk um so i knew the high category ones were probably real bad ones 
whereas the lower category runs were probably just unlucky and on the wrong street at the wrong time. I don't, you know, I never really knew and I never really found out. So these guys, yeah, they, they were, but the ethics of looking after them was really challenging because these were the guys whose pals were all lobbing rockets at me every night uh, and who were trying to kill, you know, one of my best mates was RMO to the Duke of Lanx regiment in the city at the time. So he was out every night with, with all these guys. Their mates were having pops at him. Uh, and I was, you know, trying to give the best medical care I could to his friends. And that was, yeah, that, I found that really, really tough. You know, you're kind of having to keep your head on the, you know, you're there to be a doctor. You're there to do a good job for your patients. You're there to advocate for them. So you're, you're finding yourself asking for better food, better conditions, trying to make sure that they're being looked after in a, in a humane fashion, while all the time their, their pals are out there trying to hurt your friends. So I found that really tough. Um, and there was lots of organisational bits. For example, we were inspected by the um, International Committee of the Red Cross. So my job was to make sure that the medical care was to a standard that they were they were happy with. And I think pretty much actually when they came out, by and large, it was. So I was pretty chuffed, you know, big tick, Fiji. But still, yeah, there were definitely days. You know, I suppose there's all, everyone has ethically difficult days on tour, but they're usually not ones like that. It's usually when you're other bad things have happened and you're kind of processing that, whereas I was sort of processing the slow burn, the slow burn stress of having to look after these guys day in, day out. Um, so mm. that, was, that was pretty tough. And there were definitely days when I, you know, you just catch yourself going, I'm on the verge of saying the wrong thing now. I'm going to go off to the gym. I'm just going to go and not be here for a little while. Um, luckily, my team were really good and they sort of, uh, they, 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 they kept, me, kept me going and kept me on the straight and narrow. Yeah, I, well, I, don't, I don't think most people do have ethically ethically challenging days on those tours. I don't think they do because they don't have to face the challenge that you're talking about there. So talking about it from my own perspective mm, sure. on the ground, yeah. um, you know, creating your casualties or creating yeah. your prisoners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? sure. Give, giving, me, giving me work to do. <laughs> we, I would never have to deal with, apart from the immediate care of a casualty yeah. and any be combatant if yeah. we'd injured or... or um, yeah, whatever. Yeah, injured them. Yeah. Then dealing with them there, and that that would be, you know, it wasn't. I never found that ethic ethically challenging because it would be a case that that's what you do. You keep yeah. them alive because it, uh, the the value of intelligence. Yes. Is, yeah, is paramount, right? Yeah, and yeah. so, I think that's where sometimes civilians who have, have a complete uh, they a misconception of of a a soldier or a sailor's or an airman's mm-hmm. motive mm-hmm. to help keep an enemy combatant alive. Someone who's just been trying to kill you alive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's because if you if you value intelligence, they you don't value. get intelligence from a dead person. No, you don't. You know. Um, but going back, no, I mm. don't think we did have an ethically challenging days because they they would just move through the chain away from the front line yes, yeah. and back to where you are. Yes. Um, talk to me about the the health. Ailment, the ailments that they had. So you talked about a lot of physical yeah, uh, a lot illnesses, of physical, a lot of yeah. diabetes. Talk about, talk to me about that in tr- tr- contrast to what your experiences of, of normal Western yeah. world f- developed country yeah. um, um, stuff. I mean, in terms of the NHS, the, the NHS practice I do. I mean, that's just standard. You know, we we, we deal with a an ethnically diverse and you know physically diverse population because I work in the NHS all the time, so I see everybody. But when you're working as, you know, my, my next job after that, I was regimental doc for the Queen's Royal Lancers. So I had 450 cavalry soldiers who almost, I can count on one hand the number of guys and girls within that unit who had complex, chronic, long-term health problems. And they were often as a result of previous injuries they'd had in service or just, just unlucky. 
whereas most of the Iraqi internees had either significant physical or significant psychological ailments, just because, well, partly because they've been, some of them have been held for quite significant periods of time without trial, you know, that's pretty stressful. These guys aren't convicted criminals who've had a trial and serving a sentence. They're held because the general considers them to be a risk to our forces. So they've no idea when they're going to get out, or if they're going to get out. Um, they were, I would say, generally pretty well treated by our guys. Um, you know, we had um, the the facility was run by uh, a Royal Artillery Battery. Uh, you know, just they they provided the guard force and they provided the sort of the the security for the place. And then we had some SMEs came from MCTC in Colchester, and they were our detention experts. So their their job was to make sure everything was done to a you know an, an appropriate and fair standard. So I think these guys were quite well looked after generally, but. You can't deny that they they lived a fairly precarious existence. They didn't really know what they were doing or when they were. Most of them had been picked up on the back of a, a detention op by infantry soldiers, and hadn't really been you know never really had much else. They did get to see their families, which I think was quite. You know, they did. Oh yeah, yeah. They got to see more of their families than I did, which was quite nice. Um, you know, every couple of weeks their their families would be allowed to come in and they would have a sort of sit down. You're really struggling with that, Mike. Yeah, you? I really am. It's, <laughs> it keeps it keeps it's trying to shove me through the wall. One sec. Into that. Shall I come forward into that? There we go. Right. Sorry about that. Yeah. Go on. Go on. Yeah. That's better. Right. Go on. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the, the I suppose the difficulty with that is that the, a lot of the the stresses aren't things I can help with. You know, as the doc, you can help with you, know, you can help with people's chronic problems. You know, you can make sure their diabetes is well looked after. You can measure their blood pressure. You can do all this sort of stuff. But a lot of the stuff that was stressing them was stuff I had no control over. I, you know, I couldn't just sort of ring up the general and go, General, by the way, this guy's having a really shit time. Could you just let him go, please? Uh, that, that wasn't going to happen. So my job was to kind of be the supportive guy. I suppose it was the, they didn't have really a padre, but I suppose that was part, a lot of what I was doing was basically giving them a place to vent somewhere safe that they could come and have a, 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 a shout off to me at. But working through an interpreter, that's really difficult because there's so many cultural nuances of how they're, of how, what things that mean to them and through the interpreter, they just get lost in that translation. So it's really difficult to, you know, figure out what, what it is that they really want of you. Um, I suppose the other, the other interesting thing there is medicine, you know, the way people experience symptoms is a real cultural thing to it. So for example, in the West, if we're feeling stressed, we tend to just go and say, I'm feeling stressed. And I think that's something that's changed a lot in recent years. Whereas in some countries, that's quite difficult. People struggle to express that in a, in a, in a way that makes sense to them. So they do what we call the medicine somatizing. In other words, they'll, they'll come to you with a physical problem, say I've got a headache or I've got a stomachache or something like that. And that's not really because they've got a problem with their guts or a problem with their brain. That's their way of expressing their stress. And that's quite difficult to work your way through. You know, we, we do see it quite a lot with Gurkhas, for example. It's, it's a sort of culturally appropriate way of saying I'm stressed or I'm depressed. Whereas, you know, you or I, like I say, the West has got much, much easier in terms of communicating when people are struggling with their mental health. Whereas around the world, that's still pretty unusual. A lot of people, places simply just don't, ex don't really understand the concept of mental health and stress. So it all comes out in terms of a physical ailment. And that's quite dangerous because if you end up chasing what you think is a gut problem, whereas actually the problem is the guy just needs to have a little bit of a rant and he'll feel better, then you'll, you, you can end up hurting people by doing too much medicine to them when that's not really what they need. They just need that's to really interesting. So, is it, so just try and understand this. Is it that, they, is it that they're pretending they've got no. a... So they, they actually have got an... Yeah, yeah, yeah. A, 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 yeah. A, a, yeah Ill, not ill health. 
Yeah. Uh, they're experiencing discomfort in their stomach or their head yeah. or whatever. Yeah. But that is how their body That's expresses. Completely. Yeah. <sighs> so there's like a big difference between malingering, which is basically making stuff up. That's the kind of, oh, it's half past ten on a, a Friday morning. I really don't want to go and see us PT. I'll know. I'll just go and tell the doctor when he's playing up. That would be malingering. But that's actually really rare. Um, these guys genuinely experience these symptoms, but it's not. That's their experience of their stress. They're they're not making it up. They're not lying. They're not trying to pull one over on you. That is genuinely what they feel. But it's helping them to understand that the reason they feel that way is not because of a, a problem with their bowels. The reason they're feeling that way is because they are stressed, anxious, upset, and you know helping them work through that. And that that that's that is a thing in the UK as well. But it's I think our culture, you know, cultural differences make it more challenging, and particularly, like I say, when you're working with someone with a different language. Because I don't know, I, I mean, I've never lived in another country. You know, I speak bad French and bad English, but I've never lived in another country long enough to work there. But I think it's really difficult to understand mental health problems and in, in, in the way that people express things in a language that's not your own. Even, mm. even you know, even no matter how long you've lived there, you know, I think it's, I think it's really tough. Yeah, interesting, because it's also down to people's level of understanding about mental health, right? Mm, completely. Um, and that comes from education, comes from the culture. Yeah. And then in some societies and cultures, is going to be, again, that sort of weakness aspect yeah. of it. Yeah, yeah. Is going to be, you know, you don't Yeah, yeah absolutely. Don't talk and about and that. that's definitely a cultural thing that I think it's been interesting watching that change, certainly in the British military since I've been in. You know, the, the idea that mental health was all caused by just weakness and you needed just a couple of slaps and to man up and go for a run or do some kettlebells and then that would sort your mental health problems out. And that's, you know, I think we've. we've We've been on a bit of a journey with that and understanding that these problems are real for people and that they, they're, not, they're not sorted out as simply as that. Mm. So, back to the question. Which, yes, is, which is more challenging. So, um, yeah, that <laughs> took it, I, I, went, I went round on a bit of a wall gathering there, didn't I? Um, I think the Iraqi job was more challenging in some ways. I mean, the, the merit is different because the merit is very immediately challenging in that it's very noisy, loads of vibration, there's loads of bang, 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 everything's going to happen. So you've got, and certainly when I was doing it, we were relatively close into Camp Bastion. So Mert originally was started off when people were getting hurt way up in Kajaki, way up in the northeast, and it was a long, long transfer to get them down. And the idea was to get good quality medical care to them as soon as possible. But as we started to draw down and withdraw from Herrick, the timelines became a lot shorter, which meant the trips became a lot quicker and there was a lot more pressure to get stuff done super, super quick. And we got really good at it. Um, you know, we got so slick because when you've got a team of four people who drill to do things every day, you can get really good at stuff that stuff that in the NHS would take a long time because you just, you, you're organising disparate teams who don't do this stuff all the time. So the, the, the time pressure is a lot more and the sort of the immediate stress is a lot higher but the slow burn stress is lower if that makes sense you know in between jobs you're, you're pretty chilled out you're, you're, you're left alone down the flight line we were day on day off more or less or a day at 15 minutes notice to move day at an hour notice to move and when it's not busy actually it's quite chilled but um, so the, the chronic stress was lower but the immediate stress was higher um, I suppose that's a roundabout way I'm not sure if that really answers the question but that's that's kind of the way no, I know what you mean I I, I uh, interviewed a guy called uh, Bloody Brain Fart. He was RAF Regiment. He's Mert. Oh God, I want to remember his name. <laughs> He's a good lad. Yeah. What is it? Oh, Tom Mar Tom Mar Tom Martinson. Yep. Uh, RAF Regiment. He spent a lot of time on Mert. Yeah, yeah. They, um, they were they were our force protection at the back of the aircraft. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. And he was uh, was it him that said it? Uh, he was saying that. Uh, it might not have been him. Anyway, the, someone made the observation that. The the thing with the Mert 
is that you going out when you go out and deploy with the Mert, every every situation you're going into someone's worst day, mm, yeah. worst day you're going into, yeah. and uh, and it really when that was explained to me, I thought actually yeah, you know, yeah. I, every day I was on out there doing stuff, every day wasn't the worst day, yeah. like someone's worst day. Mm. Some days were someone's worst day. Yes, some days yeah. were some my worst day, yeah. right? Yeah. But not all the time. Yeah. And to, and that that level of uh, that level of stress, like quick stress, quick yeah. onset of it. Repeatedly knowing what you're doing, knowing you, you're going in to be the lifeline potentially for someone yeah. making it or not. Yeah, you know, uh, incredibly challenging. What what uh, any does any incident stick in your mind as uh, as like the most challenge that you dealt with on the back of that heli? I can't, I can't imagine trying to, especially at night. <sighs> yeah, trying to treat people. Yeah, like the that. night the night stuff was was interesting. Although luckily I didn't do too many jobs at night. Um, I think when you have several casualties, I think that's the that's the the, the 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 most troubling thing is when you've got more than one patient. Because when you've got one patient, four you know we had four clinicians and one patient, so one doc, one nurse, two paramedics, and four clinicians, one patient. And pretty much no matter how sick the patient, four clinicians can do a lot very quickly. Um, you know, I remember picking up a U.S. Marine Corps soldier who'd had um, both who'd, um, both legs taken off by an IED, and we had nine minutes with him, and in that time we managed to give him a we pack his pack all his wounds up tourniquet his legs, dress his legs, um, get introsius cannula in, so give him some blood transfusion, so we gave him some blood transfusion, we gave him an anaesthetic, and we managed all that in about nine minutes. What, you, what cannula did you say then? Sorry, introsius. So when someone's really, really shut down, when they've got no, no blood left in them, getting a venous cannula to give them drugs and medications <coughs> and everything else is really challenging, and, and particularly when you're doing it either in the dark or when the, the, in the vibration and the noise of the lifter, it's pretty tough. It can be done, but sometimes there isn't time to have a couple of goes. So to do it quicker, what you can do is put a cannula into the humeral head to use basically, it basically looks like a drill. Um, and you, you drill a, a, a cannula into the, the, the bone marrow there. On the shoulder? Oh, to the shoulder, yeah. You used to do it into the leg, but actually often we were dealing with people who didn't have any legs. So we, we learned to do it <laughs> to the shoulder. Uh, and then you can inject drugs, blood, everything else you want through it. Um, it's, it's, it sounds really brutal, but actually works really, really well. The only problem with it is it really hurts. So one of the reasons, so generally what we do is put the cannula in. Actually putting the cannula in doesn't hurt very much. There's loads of pictures on YouTube of people putting them, you can put them into the sternum or you can put them into the humeral head. There's loads of YouTube videos of people putting them into themselves and actually having them put in doesn't hurt very much. But as soon as you inject anything in there, you're expanding the bone marrow cavity and that hurts a lot. So generally, you, you generally you'll see the YouTube videos and people will, will, will tolerate having them put in all right, but as soon as you start to put anything through it, that really hurts. So generally, what I would do is, um, one of the, the nurse was on the patient's right, so she'd put one in that side. Paramedic, she'd put one in that side, and then they'd both be injecting blood, and I put one into the, the sternum there, and that would allow me to give drugs, particularly sedatives and anaesthetics. So generally, I would put one in, and the first thing I would give would be some sedative. Uh, a bit of ketamine just to get them over the pain of having to have stuff injected into their shoulders. I'd never heard of that procedure. Yeah, yeah it's really common. It's, well, it's thankfully it's not very common these days, but it was our standard our standard of care for a long time with our really sick patients. When uh, you're pumping blood into the bone marrow, yep. how much can you pump in? It can't be a, a massive rate, can it? It's not huge. I mean, you. So normally when you you put blood into a vein, you just squeeze the bag and, and in it goes. To get it into the bone, you need to generate a lot more pressure, and that's the, the rate-limiting step. So what you, you end up doing is syringing. So you use a, a big syringe, and you have to really shove 
really hard. So you, you'd end up, let's say, the, the nurse and the paramedic would absolutely digging out, shoving shoving all this blood in. Whenever you'd see, I mean, you used to see pictures of people coming in to dropping off patients at Bastion and they'd be covered in blood. It was never the patient's blood. What can happen is if you don't have the syringe on properly, you generate so much pressure that if you get it wrong, you'll spray yourself in whatever you're, you're injecting. So we've got pictures of uh, Leachy, the paramedic I worked with. It, just, it looks like he's drenched in blood, but it's not the patient's blood. He's just got the syringe wrong and sprayed himself with uh, the stuff from the bag. How, do, how does the blood, right, give me a biology lesson because oh, sure. I've forgotten. Yeah. How does the blood get from the, quickly get from the marrow to the bone yeah. to the bloodstream? It's, it goes, That's incredible. Yeah, it's incredible. The blood of the human body is unbelievable. It's, it's, it's amazing. <laughs> it's, it's as quick as putting it into a vein. So if you put it into it the really? bone, yeah. Uh, again, go on YouTube. You can have a look. You can see um, videos of people injecting a radiopaque dye. So you can have a sort of x-ray picture and you can see what happens when you inject it into the humeral head. And you can see it. It will go drain. The veins drain straight out of the bone marrow and into the blood system. So... As you inject, pretty much you will see the dye coming into the subclavian veins um, on the right-hand side there, and it's, it's straight into the bloodstream. So we can give, you know, we can give a general anaesthetic exactly as you would in an operating theatre. We can do that through through the bone. Um, it's it's like I say, the only problem is that it really hurts. Otherwise, we do a lot more of it. Uh, it feels really brutal. You see people doing it. You know, we do do it in the NHS when people are really sick or people are really some people are really tough to get access on for various reasons. So we'll do it in the NHS, but you find in the NHS people are quite frightened of doing it because it feels really brutal. You know, this idea of I'm going to take it, I'm going to take this drill and I'm going to drill this thing into you, uh, unless you're an orthopaedic surgeon, is is quite an unusual experience for most people. So you find people are quite sort of frightened to do it in the NHS, whereas we train CMTs to do it all the time, and it's it's just a sort of standard of care. It works really really well, but it mm. does sound it sounds mental, but it really does work. Mm. Did you see any throughout your time, so on on in your different roles with, with the military? And uh, now, obviously, you've got extensive experience with the NHS. Have you seen anything, any procedures or any t- techniques or anything of the bodies of knowledge that ca- came into, into service, if you like, with the military or whatever operation, and then you've seen them over time come into the NHS in some way and, and, yeah. and manifest themselves at like a, a normal local yeah. populist level? Well, that Introsius, for example, that the, most of the experience of that came from the military. I mean, um, a colleague of mine, Ed Barnard, and I wrote a research paper on that a few years ago, which is now... You know about how to use it to give an anaesthetic through, and that had never been never been done before. Um, what in, else? In, intraosseous is called intraosseous. Intraosseous. How do you spell yeah. that? I n. Oh god, you know, it's spelling b. I n t r a o e. Oh no, I've lost it. Sorry, I have to write. I have to write it down. Spelling's not my thing. Intraosseous. Intraosseous. Intraosseous access. So that's definitely. I mean, that that was originally quite commonly used in children um, who are, can be very difficult to get veins on. So there's a, there's, a really, uh, there's, a, there's a tricky age with children. Newborn babies have got very small veins, but you can usually get one. But you know the happy, the happy toddler with the big pudgy hands? I don't know if you've got kids, but my, my, my kids, when they, were, when they were about a year, 18 months, they go through this phase of having really, you know, really soft, pudgy hands and trying to get a vein in them is a nightmare. So if they're really sick, we'll, we'll use an introsius cannula in them instead. And that's where the technique came from. But popularizing use in the adults or popularizing normalizing use in adults definitely came from the military i mean there's a few other things that have come for example we were one of the first to do pre-hospital blood transfusions so previously blood transfusion was only ever something that came in hospital and to to do that in in the field was it had been done in the second world war i mean if you go you go back to the guys at market garden who jumped in there um they they carried plasma um freeze-dried plasma that they could give whereas 
that has sort of fallen out of practice. Um, whereas nowadays, when I work on the air ambulance, we carry two units of blood and two units of fresh frozen plasma with us all the time. And that's something that we used to do on Mar, and that's come you know, into, into normal civilian practice. What else? Uh, why wasn't it? Why was? Why did it drop out in the first place? Because of risk, perceived I think, risk. I think perceived risk, and also I think it just people just forgot that it could happen. Um, you know, it. I'm trying to think where where it went. I mean, you know, so for a long time, the standard of care for people who were bleeding was to give them effectively salty water. And study after study after study showed that this really isn't the best thing for patients. You know, <laughs> my colleagues are saying that salty water is best for cooking pasta. Um, but for some reason, it just stayed the standard of care that someone who was bleeding should be given salt water. And actually, we know that that's really bad for patients. You know, if, you, if you're bleeding and I give you cold salt water, what it'll do is it'll dilute your blood so it won't clot. It will make your blood more acidic so it won't clot. And it will reduce its ability to carry oxygen. So it's, it's actually making you worse. And yet for years and years, it was the standard of care. Oh, my God. Um, so nowadays, we, what we try and do is replace what's being lost. So... When you hold up, if you see on the TV show, you see them holding up a bag of what looks like blood. It's not actually blood. It's packed red cells. So we, we end up having to give it as components. Um, giving whole blood is quite technically challenging. The NHS don't do it very often. But Why that, is that? What um, was, what's challenging because, about it? Because um, it's the way it's produced and the way it's managed. So when you go and give a, a unit of blood, it gets taken out of your arm, gets put in a bag, and then it gets separated out into components because different people need different parts of the blood. So, for example, someone who's got chronic anemia because they've got a bleeding bowel tumour needs some red cells, so they'll get, your, they'll get the red cells. Someone who's got abnormal clotting um, because their liver's failed will get the plasma. Someone whose platelets have died because they've got platelet suppression will get the platelets. So you, you split it up so you can actually do the most good with the unit of blood by giving it to several different people. I did not know that. But if, you, if someone is actually bleeding, then whole blood is what they need. But because the National Blood Transfusion Service don't deal with that very often, getting whole blood from your arm into mine in a civilian setting is pretty challenging. Now, it's something we do in more austere ops, and that's something we've been, we've been working on, effectively the walking donor panel. So if you've got a company of troops, we'll, we'll have people pre-screened and pre-checked so we know what your blood group is and we know that they've been screened for viruses so we can donate a, take a unit of blood from a soldier and give it to someone who's bleeding. The French have done it in Mali. Um, there's a fantastic paper from the Norwegians. So you'd think it would... So there's lots of worries about are we going to de degrade our soldiers' ability to fight um, by taking a unit of blood off them? Because you think take a unit of blood and you, you, you're not going to feel very well. So the Norwegians did this fantastic study where some of their SF guys did a series of physical tests had a unit of blood taken, and then did the tests again. And of course, you know what SF guys are like. They were, um, they're such a competitive bunch at the best of times. They all actually did better on the tests after having a unit of blood taken off. Them. <laughs> <laughs> like uh, that in the same day kind of thing? Yeah, yeah same day. So the idea, so the idea is that an uh, incident happens, yep. patient needs blood, yep. you're miles away from roll one facility, whatever you call it, yep. and you take blood from another soldier. So you do that probably on a, the ground. You probably you probably wouldn't do it on the ground. You'd do it in a, in a light surgical facility. So if you had troops at reach being supported by their own their own MO, their own medics, but a long way away from anything that resembles a hospital, we can deploy a light surgical team, which is a team of it depends on it. You, you, there's various configurations, but a small group of people that provides me as an emergency physician, but we'd also have anaesthetist surgeons. We have a biomedical science to, scientist to handle blood and everything else. Well, that's not light. That's quite heavy, isn't it's it? It's quite. I mean, it, these things are all comparative. You know, the smallest field hospital is um, over 100 people. Um, 
and, a, and a, you know, ISO's and ISO's full of kits. So when we did exercise safe Syria in Oman with Tutu Field Hospital a couple of years ago, that's what we took. So they, that, that smallest field hospital is, you know, over 100 guys and over guys and girls and over 100 uh, ISO's of kits. So it's a huge beast. So these things are all relative. You know, they, the smallest... So we, yeah, it's, it's all a continuum, isn't it? So right up forward, you've got the team medics, the guys doing their own medical care, and then slightly back from that, you should have their own intimate med support. So they're they're the the, the squadron, the company medics, and then the MOs who are generally GPs with extra training. The next sort of step up from that is MERT, and we can go we can go really quite small. So the MERT we had in Afghanistan was a team of four, but we can go as a team of two. So I can go out with a paramedic, um, but we can still give blood transfusions, we can give anesthesia and all that stuff. Once you get bigger than that, you you want to do surgery. And to, to, to do surgery actually requires quite a lot of other people because you've got your... So our, these teams will have two surgeons whose job it is really to stop bleeding. So, you know, I, I can do lots of things with drugs and everything else, but I'm not a surgeon, so I can't reach inside your body and stop you bleeding. So only a surgeon can do that. But for a surgeon to work, you can't just send out one surgeon, one knife, because they're pretty useless. They need a whole lot of other stuff to work you know you need an anesthetist whose job it is to keep the patient comfortable well you know well so their job is to keep the patient come well <laughs> my anesthetist colleagues would say the anesthetist's job is to keep the patient um, alive and comfortable while the surgeon does his best to ensure the uh, the opposite so the anesthetist's <laughs> job is to carry on the resuscitation keep the patient asleep and keep them stable and that's that's in a, in a sick patient that's really challenging so you've got two anesthetists two surgeons the surgeons need a group of guys called operating department practitioners and their job is to keep the instruments and the kit working around them so that they, the kit is sterile and it's ready and it's good to go so that when the surgeon's working really hard you know inside a belly to clip a bleeding vessel there's somebody there to make sure that the kit is being passed in you know as is as is needed so all of that takes a lot of kit takes a lot of people so although we call it a light surgical group you're right by by military standards it's still, it's still pretty hefty but uh, that's about as small as you can go and still actually effectively reach into somebody's body there's been a bit of work done the americans have been trying to work on this excuse me trying to go even lighter i mean we we've, they, they, they've they've looked at what they call surgical resuscitation teams which are go down to four people but the trouble with that is even those four people, as soon as you take it, you know, you can, you can project it as far forward as you like. But as soon as you've got a casualty you're working on, everyone is completely heads in. You're completely immobilized and you're really vulnerable and you're relying on other people for your local defense. So you've got to be really careful how far you push that because if, you, if you're in the middle of a fast-moving operation and you're immobilized because you're busy cutting someone's belly open, then you, make, you, you immobilize everybody and you make everybody really vulnerable. So there's only so far forward you can push that capability before you actually cause more harm than good. Um, so generally what we're finding is, you know, it's all about risk, time, transfer. So my job generally these days, you know, moving away from the Afghan world, my job more is to support my colleagues in the role one, the RAP. You know, we'll, we'll bolster onto the RAP and provide their, their back door. So they're looking forward at what the guys and girls are doing on the ground. We'll be in a sort of safe, safe place, but well back from that so that we can do our bits, we can make people sure people are comfortable, give them all that blood product transfusion, all the, the extra drugs that we can give. And then we can handle the, the moving the patient, you know, sometimes several hours to get to a hospital if necessary. And the, you know, the role one medics can stay where they are looking after their own guys and girls. Mm.
What well, what you mentioned uh, the French in Mali. What did the French what did the French do in Mali? Ah, so they they've been doing some work with whole blood transfusions. Yeah. Um, so that's that business of like I say the the troops on the ground all being pre-screened and someone gets hurt, they'll take a unit of blood from within the unit and transfuse it then and there. I don't know how far forward they're going with that. Um, I think they're still doing that in static positions. I don't think you're quite at the stage of taking a unit of blood at the back of a warrior and sort of transfusing it in. But you know there's no theoretical reason why not, but it's, I suppose it, it all comes down to the practicalities, like I say, of what else is going on and, you know, what what, what other things are happening in the operation. Because the trouble with medics is we, we tend to think that we're really important because I suppose, well, that's basically all. But actually, we are we're very much enablers. You know, we're part of the G4 chain. We, we support the fighting troops. And at the end of the day, you know, achieving the mission has got to be the thing that the thing that happens. So we can only work within that context. We can only work with... You know, work with everybody else to you know get stuff done. Mm. What's it, what's it like uh, being a doc at a, a regular unit like the like the Lancers? <laughs> um, Always fascinating. Yeah, I'm yeah. I'm just thinking of the time with the, the docs at three power over time and think, oh man, it must be a nightmare sometimes. It must be a nightmare. <laughs> must be the same um, for all units, right? Yeah, I think every every unit's got their challenges. I mean, I think I was really lucky actually. I think the Lancers were a great bunch. Um, I think cavalry soldiers are generally quite. I think the the amount of silliness that went on was slightly less. Uh, my, my mate Phil next door, he had Second uh, Battalion Duke of Lancasters, and I think he had a few more um, interesting characters who would do some. And then they did some amazing stuff. <laughs> um, I just I, they, they think they just stuck me with the Lancers. They had great nicknames for each other, you know. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> like um, you know, Sergeant Major Driver was known as Screwy. It's known as what? Screwy. <laughs> Mr. Locking was known as Central. Uh, Captain Drew, who was known as Nancy. Um, and one guy who was so ugly that he was known to the entire regiment, including, including the colonel, used to call this guy Motley because he was so ugly. <laughs> Military nicknames um, are the best. Yeah. They're, just so, they're so obvious, aren't they? Yeah, it's like, yeah. uh, where's, where's Tiny? He's tiny. He's not, he's not tiny, he's massive. Yeah, he's huge. Or Doghead. Yeah. Or bull, what, Bullhead. Yeah. Why is he called, why do you call him Bullhead? Because he's got a head like a bull. <laughs> <laughs> why do you call him Doghead? He's got a head like a dog. <laughs> I've I've got a mate who's a retired W two who's um you know and I, I knew him as a W two so you know big you know big senior I was a junior junior captain he was a senior W two so you know really important guy you take this guy super seriously but his name was Junior and you, you're kind of struggling to like this is this really important guy I've got to take him really seriously why are you called Junior because I've got three big brothers and when I joined they just called me Junior and it just, <laughs> just stuck. <laughs> I was uh. How's things been for you work-wise since, um, since the obvious flipping yeah, C-word started happening? Um, it's been different. Um, sometimes good different, sometimes bad different. Um, it's been busy. Um, I think we in the emergency department have probably done all right generally. I think. Sorry, so explain what you do now. Actually. Sorry, yeah, Sorry, go on. Yes, um, so I... I'm an emergency physician, so I work in the emergency department, the John Radcliffe in Oxford. Um, so that's one of my, I've, I've actually got about four jobs. So that's one of my jobs. My other job, uh, until very recently, I used to fly as a critical care doctor with Thames Valley Air Ambulance. I've literally just, I'm just in the process of being posted, so that's changing. Um, I also do, um, I'm the Carter emergency physician at Tutu Field Hospital, so I'm there so in-house in guy for emergency stuff. Uh, and I'm also the clinical director of Merck training, so I run... So my job now is to take people who are working on you know, regular army or Navy and RAF docs who are working on air ambulances in the UK, and I run a training course to sort of show them how to do take those skills and then use them on operations. So we do a two-week course at RAF Bryce Norton to try and teach them how to ma how to you know convert their skills into into a tactical sense and how to manage 
combat casualties, but to the same standard that they would on their own air ambulance services in the UK. So that's, that's those, are, those are my jobs, plus, plus whatever else comes in every now and again. There's something else comes what in. What does that course look like, that two-week course? So uh, what does it look like? So we do a bit of kit familiarization. We do you know stage one drills on Puma and Chinook, and we sort of show people how to, how to work on an airframe that's quite different. Because normally, most civilian air ambulances use very small aircraft, uh, EC-135, EC-145. So they're quite small aircraft, one patient, a couple of clinicians. But the difference generally is that on those really small platforms, um, I suppose Wildcat or Lynx is probably the closest military equivalent, you can't do very much in flight. So in Afghan Mart, we used to use a Chinook, which is the size of a bus. So you can basically get up and run around it. You can run laps around the thing if you want. Whereas, you know, I remember <laughs> coming back from Afghan onto this little civilian air ambulance going, this is ridiculous. What do you mean I can't get up and walk around? Um, so, but obviously the model we use is much more permissive. It's very rarely that you're actually in danger at the point of wounding. You know, the, the car crash has happened. The, the person's fallen off a building. So you'll arrive, you'll stabilize the patient, and then you'll transfer once stabilized whereas obviously you can't do that in a contact you have to evacuate as fast as possible because i can't imagine the uh, the chinook crew would be too thrilled to just stay on the ground while we just you know just we'll just do a few more bits here so the idea is to get on and off the ground as fast as possible and and do everything in transit so it's a very different model of care um so it's trying to teach people how to sort of think differently about how to deliver care in transit in a platform you can move around on so that's that's that um and also the patterns of injury we see you know you thankfully you don't see an awful lot of gunshot or explosive wounds in the uk uh, unless you work in inner city areas and even then the wounds you see are very different because most criminal personal person violence in the uk is small small caliber weapons and they produce very different injury patterns to high velocity rifles thankfully thankfully we don't see an awful lot of that um you see the occasional shotgun but again you, you don't see high velocity 762 rounds going through people and again stand fast you know the days of northern ireland actual explosive injuries in the uk are really really rare thankfully so there's a bit of reminder revise that we need to do to sort of teach people how to measure how to manage those casualties and just keep those skills alive because obviously we're not thankfully we're not in a kinetic war anymore we're not seeing large numbers of casualties but it's important that we don't lose the lessons that we gained so hard um i mean there's a there's been a, we, we did we did get so much better during the afghan years at managing these casualties um one of my colleagues in oxford is a guy called john penn barwell is a, a navy surgeon he's he's an academic he's done some really interesting work trying to capture all these lessons and he's produced this amazing graph that shows how much better for a given burden of injury um, how much better we got at keeping these people alive. So we can we can give people scores to sort of put a number on how badly injured you are based on, you know, what's happened to various parts of your body. Survivability, right? Survivability, exactly. And that's where we end up in this point of having patients who statistically shouldn't survive, and yet we've got a fairly large cohort of guys and girls who survived injuries from the Afghan days who shouldn't have, you know, mathematically shouldn't have survived. Um, and he's produced this amazing graph that just shows year on year how we got a little bit better every time. Because it's in beautiful colours, it looks like a unicorn's tail, so he calls it the magic unicorn slide. <laughs> it is incredible when you think you've got, you know, uh, people like Mark Ormrod mm. um, yep. walking around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got one limb. Yeah, yeah. And, and not only... And, and and other people who are who have got catastrophic injuries like him, multiple yep. uh, multiple amputations, traumatic amputations, and not only being able to function, but being able to enjoy life. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's it's, um, it's incredible. It I think people do forget actually. Yeah. How 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 awesome that primary care yeah, yeah. was to be able to have those keep those people alive, and then also. To, 
aftercare, the technology we've got now that can just, again, enabling, yeah. enabling people to get the most out of their life, yeah. even though they've, they've got, they're operating with less than a full body. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny, you know, Merck's quite, quite a visible thing, you know, obviously, because we come on a helicopter and lots of people remember us picking up casualties, but actually we were a very small part in such a huge chain. You know, people say, people use phrases like life-saving, but actually we very rarely saved life, I would say. It happened occasionally, but generally the lives that were saved, it was the guys and girls on the ground getting the tourniquets on, putting those dressings in, giving that pain relief then and there. They're the ones who really save lives, you know, once you know, once once they're on the aircraft, our bit actually what we what we're doing is we're starting off that rehab process. And I know that sounds crazy, but what we're doing is we're we're assuming that you know the medic on the ground they've saved the life. We're starting off that process of getting them back to having a life. So by giving early anaesthetic, early good blood blood, blood products, we're we're giving them over to the surgeons in a good state for their surgery. By giving them good early pain relief, we're hopefully reducing the psychological complications that people are going to get from being injured. So all of that, but all of that actually has its effect really months and months later when they're going through Headley Core, as is now the DNRC. That's the stuff that, as you say, takes them from the injured person to someone who's actually got a life that they, they enjoy living. And that's that's the really important part of what we do, I think. We start that process off, but it's, it's a long chain and it takes months and months and an awful lot of people. And we're just a very, very small part of it. How much notice would uh, the surgeons in Bastion get about having to conduct a potentially life-saving surgery, a complex surgery on, on someone? Yeah, I think that depended, depended on who brought them in. Um, so <laughs> Go on. <laughs> so um, generally, for if it was, if it was a, one, of, one of our casualty evacuations, so we, we worked alongside the Americans, they would, so we, we would get dispatched to slightly different casualties. So the Pedro and then later on the um, dust-off aircraft, would, they were quicker off the ground and so they could go to some stuff, but we had more capability, so we would go to the, the sicker casualties. Um, but we were generally quite good at, quite good at telling people we were bringing patients in. I mean, you know, and sometimes what turned up wasn't entirely what we said was, but at least they would have some, have some notice. Um, <laughs> if the, um, the Afghans next door would just bring in, we used to call, Shur they, they lived in Camp Shurabak next door, and they would bring us in what we call Shurabak specials. We'd basically, they would, their, 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 approach <laughs> their, their approach to casualty management was very, very different. So basically what would happen is they would, they would put the casualty sometimes with not very much care at all, in an ambulance and drive them around to Bastion. And basically the dude in the front wasn't a medic, he was just a driver. He would just sort of get into the ambulance bay and honk the horn. And we all developed this horrendous Pavlovian response to a horn honking. We'd all leg it out into the ambulance bay and, and open the doors. And sometimes you'd find a guy with a cut finger and sometimes you'd see some see some horrendous things when you open that, that, that those ambulance doors. So <laughs> so they were um they were they were the interesting ones. But the surgeons generally you surgery has to be planned and thought through. You don't just dive on in with a knife. You've got to think quite carefully about what you're gonna do. So we would try very hard to give the surgeons time. So our, our you know, certainly in the emergency department, our job is to kind of bring some order to the chaos. You know, we we should getting a whole pile of casualties and our job is to kind of sort out who needs what, um, be that from clinical examination or ideally from a CT scan, so then we can pass them on so that we can sort of chat to the surgeons and go, okay, that one, that one immediately looked the sickest, but actually what we'll do is we'll keep that one here and we'll give him a bit more blood, a bit more resuscitation and we'll, he can go to theatre a little bit later, whereas that one is still bleeding and really needs to go under the knife right now, so we'll move that one into the operating theatre and then they would work. So the surgeons got a bit more, a bit more planning, you know, our job was to act as a sort of a break and a buffer to give them a bit of headspace to think about what they actually needed to do, and then they could move the patients on from there. So it's it's all I suppose it's all it's all to do with that that team that team mentality, and then you know everyone having their own little role within it. Mm. 
How long did you? How long would you do in those? How long did the docs do in those rotations and the surgeons doing those rotations? Oh. Um, it varied. They try not to have us away for more than about three months, um, and the, there's there's a number of reasons. And that that started off during the sort of Balkan days, and that was because pe people weren't doing very much. And the trouble with particularly surgeons and anaesthetists is that unless there's lots of casualties, they're not doing very much, and so they, their skills can atrophy. You know, if you're not doing your job, you kind of forget some of the little nuances of it. You're not quite as slick. You're not quite as good. And we, we you know we see the same thing. Uh, emergency physicians, we've generally always got something to do, even if it's just minor injuries and, and some of the primary health care that we get involved in. So we've generally got, we're generally fairly okay, but the surgeons and anaesthetists can get quite bored and, and disruptive at times. But, um, <laughs> you know, I say bored soldiers are a thing, well, bored surgeons are definitely a thing. Um, so we generally will go away for about three months. And that, that sort of kept going in Iraq and Afghan, and then be simply because the intensity was so, when, when things were busy, the intensity was so high that we were burning people out. Um, and so just to, to avoid people getting physically and mentally exhausted they had to be rotated through reasonably regularly these days we're trying very hard to stay back to that three-month model uh, and again it's mostly because most of our ops these days are lower tempo uh, thankfully we're not taking large numbers of casualties but it means that that skill fade is more of a problem again um, so yeah we generally try to keep it to about three months that's, that's about as much as we think is re realistic after that i mean even last couple of times i've been away you come back after three four months away a bit of pottle and you kind of it's not that you forget how to do your job but you just need a little bit of a, a bit of guided practice so i generally will make sure that i'm in a, if i'm in the emergency department i'm working with a, an experienced colleague just to sort of you know take a few days to remind myself how how the nhs is different from being an ops uh, yeah and yeah. it is. So what, what's uh, so what so what's that like? Military military GP, and you're not on an operation, uh, working with the NHS. What should what you, what you do? What you do? So the GP, I mean, the GPs are slightly different. So the GPs generally work in med centres, so they're 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 doing their their job all the time. My job is predominantly in the NHS. You know, probably probably about two thirds of my time is spent in the NHS, um, and the rest of it's spent supporting. It's either you know get ready for ops or various kinds, or it's just I mean I, I support a lot of training. You know we a lot of what we do is try and pass on our knowledge to to other people and sort of support. You know I support other units. So for example, if a one of my primary care colleagues you know they want a bit of extra trauma training for the medics and their RAP, um, then I'll you know arrange to go and do that for a couple of days. So a lot of it a lot of it is that kind of work. Um, you know we we are we're a bit of a scarce resource. There's not huge numbers of us. But a lot of what we do isn't. We can't be on ops. We can't be everywhere all the time. So a lot of what we do is is try and pass on what we what we learn from the fact that we're we're dealing with patients every day in the NHS. Um, you know, we're dealing with trauma. You know, Oxford's a major trauma centre, so I deal with trauma patients every day. Whereas a CMT in a med centre is predominantly doing primary care work. You know, all about occupational medicine, all about getting people ready to deploy vaccinations or you know hearing checks, all of that sort of work. So they don't see an awful lot of trauma. So in order to get the most out of their limited time training, we try and go and support those exercises, make sure they're realistic and make sure that we're, you know, the, the markings is not just about what, what the book says, but what, what we know actually works in real life. Are you uniformed at hospital? <laughs> um, I wear scrubs. Um, just because I, I wanted a job where I could wear my jammies to work, um, but I wear a little rank tab on the front of my a little rank tab on the front of my my scrubs. Um, I think that's given. I think that's quite important. I think it's quite important that my civilian colleagues see because there's there's quite a few military people in Oxford. Predominantly, uh, we've got. I think in the emergency department we've got four or five military consultants, but we've also got probably twenty nurses um, in ED, ITU. Uh, we've got at least one orthopaedic surgeon, at least one plastic surgeon, there are a couple of anaesthetists. So there's, there's quite a few of us sort of spread through. Why there's so many at Oxford? Um, 
Well, we're spread all over the country. The, we're predominantly working in major trauma centres, but Oxford is, has traditionally been quite, quite a good place because it's near Bryce Norton. So, for example, if one of the, we, we come under the Royal Centre for Defence Medicine based in Birmingham, but we, we are one of the alternate sites if, for whatever reason, a patient is brought back to the UK from overseas, they, they, they should go to Birmingham. But if Birmingham's full or can't accept for whatever reason, then Oxford's one of the, one of the extra places. But we... So... The reason we're all, we're also widely distributed, we, you know, we obviously we used to have military hospitals and they closed 1991, I think. Um, some of them kept going a bit longer, but it, the options for change review said no, these these places aren't aren't what we need anymore. Um, they were good hospitals for what they did, but the problem was that they weren't giving us the clinicians the the exposure the exposure we needed. We weren't looking after sick patients; we were looking after young fit soldiers. So our surgeons were doing hernia ops and varicose vein stripping for fit guys and girls. And that's not the stuff they need to be practicing for ops. So we all moved over into the NHS. But then that means that the 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 predominantly what happened was people moved into hospitals that were near significant areas of military population. So for example, the in Catrick, the Catrick Military Hospital closed and everyone moved into the, the local little hospital in North Allerton. But actually that's probably not the best place either. So predominantly people have now moved into Middlesbrough, which is fairly busy. We've got people in Plymouth, again, big naval centre, Portsmouth, big naval centre. Um, the army guys are generally a bit more disparate um, because it's not, you know, for example, like Salisbury Plains got a big centre of army population, but there's not really a big trauma centre there. So some of us ended up in Oxford and other people ended up in Southampton. So there's, there's, we're sort of drifted all over the place. And I'm actually posted to Glasgow shortly, uh, even though there's, there's Faz Lane's probably the nearest big military centre up there. But um, that's mostly to do with the, the opportunities to do uh, critical care retrieval work, um, which I think is going to be really useful for the military going forward because a lot of what we're going to be doing I think in the next few years is, well, hopefully we're not going to be doing peer-on-peer. Peer. Hopefully we're going to be doing, you know, most of the stuff is small teams at deployed at reach a long way away from hospital. And, you know, as much as possible, that that's still that merit model of trying to bring the hospital to the patient is that we'll we'll be up there, you know, in, in sort of relatively austere settings, but looking after those those guys and girls who've been hurt and then moving them long distances to get to, to a hospital. And that's your next job, the critical care um Yes, Crit yeah, that's the next job. Crit uh, critical, critical, care critical care retrieval. So. Oh, retrieval, that's right, yeah. yeah. Can yeah. you talk about that or not? Uh, yeah, yeah, so that's, I mean, that's, uh, that's an amazing job. So I'll, I'll also be, I'll be, well, I will be working in an emergency department in Glasgow, but I'll also be doing, the way, the way that works is if you get sick or injured in the remote and rural communities in Scotland, obviously you can't have a big hospital everywhere. There's just not the population density to support it. So you've got lots of little hospitals, and some of those are managed by secondary care docs, you know, surgeons, anaesthetists, but they're, they're, basically for a lot of things they're one brick thick so if you have a sick person who needs to be moved down to one of the bigger centers you can't strip the resources away from the little hospital because there's just nothing left so there are there's a team based there's two teams actually based in glasgow and aberdeen and if you get sick in one of these remote and rural places we will get in it well we can go by car we can go by fixed wing we can go by helicopter if the weather's rubbish you can go by the search and rescue aircraft which is really interesting it gets quite bouncy at times um <coughs> sorry uh, and we'll go out to wherever you are and if it's uh, and we'll basically sort of fi fix you up package you up bring you into that aircraft and bring you uh, down to the central belt so that's i think that militarily that's really useful i think that's that's got a lot of a lot of things to offer from a teaching point of view so i'm really excited about going on to do that i think that'll bring a lot of good lessons into the in, into the military yeah, that could include rigs as well, I, I take it, oil rigs. Um, do you know, there's no reason why not, but I don't think we do very much rig stuff because we're, but actually, possibly, um, you know, it's, it's, I'm trying to think what, what you would do. Um, 
I think with the rig stuff, probably what you would do is just load them on because most of them can get easy access to their own aircraft. They would probably just bring them back. But I suppose if there was a big incident on a rig, yeah, actually, yeah, you you could. Our kit could be loaded into one of their aircraft, and we could go out and bring a patient in. I've I've not really thought about it, but yeah, I, I guess it works in theory. Certainly, some of my colleagues have done. Um, where, where I mean, yeah, you've been to some pretty you know pretty pretty remote islands where there's not really very much, and I guess a, an oil rig's not that different in terms of uh, mm. capability, is it? Yeah, probably have better. Better care facility there, emergency yeah. care. Yeah, you probably do actually. Yeah, they're, yeah. they're much more set for it. Yeah, you know, they, they do certainly since the, you know, some of the horrendous things that have happened on oil rigs. I guess they're quite used to people getting sick and injured, and they they have quite a lot of prep for it because they're not necessarily. It's not easy sometimes to get off an oil rig, is it? Yeah. When the weather's bad. Um, when did you start working at Oxford? Twenty uh, fifteen. Okay. So, the 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 train time, you know, you know, the training time is is enormous. I mean, I started medical school in two thousand in nineteen ninety eight, uh, and I only became a consultant in twenty fifteen. So it takes a long, long time to get to the end. Uh, but yeah, it's been it's been a good run though. Oxford's Oxford's a good place to be. Yeah. So um, talking about the 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 experience through COVID, uh, yep. obviously, there's been a lot of interesting new perspective. Yeah. Um, lots of lots in the news. Lots of experiences. I, I've interviewed a, a nurse who's oh, she's a jock actually. Mm. Um, I can't remember which hospital she's in. Interviewed a nurse uh, last year through the mm. pandemic. Talking about the, their her day to day and the pressures and all the rest of it. So talk to me about that from from your experience. Yeah, it's been interesting, and I think I, I don't think we've had the worst of it to be honest. I think my colleagues in critical care and respiratory medicine have been hit really really hard. They've had a lot of very sick patients to manage for a long time. I think our our part of it's been. Relative, you know, it's been busy, but we've not seen a lot of the normal work we see. You know, because of lockdown, people haven't been out getting drunk, they haven't been out smashing their cars up. So, we've seen a lot less of what we would consider our normal business. So, actually, I would say our workload's been about the same, whereas theirs is. You know, it's just been different, whereas their workload's gone up. Has anything been? Has any changes been unexpected? Has anything changed? Like, like increase in incidence of whatever. Yeah, I mean, it's been, it's been, you've been seeing a lot of things that we didn't, we haven't seen for a long time because we've seen, you know, usually, for example, you get chest pain, you, you ring an ambulance, you turn up to hospital. But we've had people who, because they're, they're, for whatever, they're frightened to go to hospital, have been delaying asking for help. And that means we've been seeing late complications to, to heart attacks and things that, things that I haven't seen for years and years. And you get certain conditions when a heart attack's not treated early enough that I hadn't seen for a long, long time, and that you've seen a bit more of that. Like what? Um, so you can get, um, there's, a, there's a condition where you get a sort of, if, um, fluid forming around the heart as a, as a late complication of a heart attack that's not been treated early. Um, or you can actually get the heart failing to pump properly. If the, so you know if you get a heart attack, you get a restriction of blood flow to the heart muscle. So we can find that on a, an ECG, or the paramedics will find it on an ECG. They'll take you straight to the cardiologists who can open up that blood vessel and re- restore the blood flow. But if that doesn't happen quickly enough, that the heart muscle will die. And if, if enough heart muscle dies, your heart won't pump properly. Um, and I, I hadn't seen that for years and years because generally these people present straight away and get sorted out and it's not really a drama so we've seen a lot of that we've seen a lot of late presenting stuff you know because the whole healthcare systems had to completely switch fire to covid lots of what we consider routine business hasn't been carrying on um and you know people have not had the same access to healthcare that they've had normally so conditions that would have been managed one way have been basically put on hold because of COVID. So we're seeing a lot of people with um, really bad arthritis who would have had a, a knee or a hip replacement have had to wait you know, months extra because all the, the operating theatres and all the surgeons and all the anaesthetists that would have been doing that have been redeployed. You know, I've had um, some of my colleagues in orthopaedic surgery in London, for example, have been doing helping out in intensive care units, and that's completely not what they're trained for, but 
you know, there's no chance anyone's going to be doing routine joint surgery in the middle of a pandemic. So they've all been, they've all been reallocated. And so, you know, there's a, there's a, a long, a, now a long wait. And that means people are getting sicker waiting for treatment that they would have had otherwise. So that's been probably the biggest, that's been the biggest downside. I mean, on the plus side, I would say there is a saying about never letting a good crisis go to waste. And I would say that some of our ways of working have gotten a lot slicker because of the pandemic, you know, because hospital medicine has a tendency to get a little bit about silos about you know about my this is my little bit of turf and i'm going to defend it and something like a pandemic suddenly forces everyone to to see themselves much more as a part of a whole rather than a, an individual you know an individual service and so there's been a i think generally it's been a lot more team working and that's been really good to see and what's been really nice actually is some of particularly one of my colleagues in oxford's been heavily involved in um sort of trying to bring some some lessons from the military into the command and control of the NHS about how to, you know, how to run a hospital more like a, a military unit, you know, having an ops room with a, a sort of, you know, a central information hub where you're bringing in information from all those bits in a bit more central direction rather than just letting every unit run itself as it sees fit, which has been, it's been an interesting, it's been interesting to see how things can change for the better when everyone's really busy and everything's really tough. Yes, good point. I hadn't thought of it like that until you mentioned it. They don't, they're all, they're all, they're just a bunch of departments with no, central um not nervous system but cpu yeah. control and everything yeah. yeah and the resources and all of that yeah. mm. so that's been you know like i say i think although it's been pretty tough i think some good things have come out of it and we have you know i suppose like everything you know you know operations are tough and they're they're miserable at times but you generally come back hopefully having learned something so there's been a bit of that I guess the the biggest thing going forward is going to be that people are tired and it's going to be what happens next, you know, how much longer this all carries on. Hopefully the, the, the rapid vaccination rollout will make it better, but uh, we've just got to see, I suppose. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see mm. what goes on um, and and uh, and see what the retention rate is like of all of these extremely yeah. experienced yeah. nurses and doctors yeah. and healthcare professionals yep. see what the retention rate is like over the next few years. I mean, sort of using military uh, period of 2000 to 2011, 12, 13, 14, there was, the, the retention rate was really low. Mm. People, people were, uh, they were doing what they joined up to do. Yeah. Yeah, and then getting out. Yeah, they were like, I've done my bit. I'm off yeah. now. Thanks and very much. We lost bags of experience, mm, yeah, bags and bags and bags of experience, and it yeah. and it caused it, well, you still suffer the repercussions a little bit. No, I think it, we are because we you know, the, the, these are the people who previously would have stayed and become our our best senior NCOs and and sort of mid level officers, and they've now you know gone off to other things, as you say, because they they've they've done what they came to do. Thanks very much. Thanks. Got the memories. Got the T-shirt. Seen the elephant, and and now I'm off. I wonder if we'll face a similar thing with the NHS. Maybe I don't. It's know. quite possible. I people are burnt out, aren't they? Yeah. And not just and not just the NHS. No. All the frontline Every, services. Everybody's think. tired. Yeah. You know. right. And and that's, I suppose that's the other thing that you know. It's, it's, you know, yes, we're we're busy, but you know, the, my colleagues, you know, paramedic colleagues in the ambulance service have have, have they've borne the brunt of, of a lot of this because, you know, again, pe because they're so busy and we're seeing people dying suddenly. There's a huge huge amounts more cardiac arrests, which are quite stressful to work with. Um, you know, our colleagues in the police have obviously had a pretty tough time with it. It's you know, it's it's been really hard. It's been hard for everybody. And and you know, away away from the emergency services, you know, I suppose. What's interesting is you realise just how many people people don't really think about, but actually are essential. You know, the, the, the guys who put sh groceries on the shelves in the supermarkets actually really are key workers. 
uh, teachers. You know, these people are absolutely key workers. Bus drivers. Bus drivers. Train completely. Drivers, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Postmen. Yeah, postmen. You know, it's, it's amazing how many people are out there that people just sort of, ah, uh, you know, you, you just take them for granted until all of a sudden they're not there and you think, oh, you know, actually there's no beans on the shelves. That's not good. Amazon, Deliveroo, <laughs> Just Eat, it's all of them. Yeah, yeah. It's absolutely. unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. I tell you what, there's a, there's a, like the, the, the delivery services. Yeah. They've, 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 they've riding, they? they're riding this wave. Yeah, yeah. Amazon, I, every two seconds, <sighs> how many, I'd love to see a, a graphic yeah. of how many Amazon vehicles are on the road delivering. Must the, be. The, it is yeah. crazy. Must be thousands. Crazy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And what did I hear about the other day? Deliveroo, oh, Deliveroo being the, uh, it's yeah. the new way of getting yeah. the drugs to your front door. Yeah, I'll tell you Have what, you heard that? No, no, I haven't seen that. So Deliveroo as in like medicines or as in illegal drugs? Oh, illegal drugs. Wow. Because <laughs> it's, it's, been, it's been hijacked yeah. by yeah. drug dealers yeah. and people who want the drugs yeah. because how else can, Yeah. it's very difficult to go and wow. get away with yeah. stuff because it's <laughs> more obvious on the street, yeah, aren't yeah. you? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> completely. I suppose, I mean, there was definitely a time in Glasgow where it was all ice cream vans, you know, the drug oh, was distribution. It? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in the 70s, they talked talk about the ice cream wars where basically drug dealers would, uh, you know, use ice cream vans as, uh, as no. a way to, to, to circulate drugs around, but people were obviously, you know, shooting other people or stabbing other people for, uh, going to the wrong ice cream van, yeah. Um, <laughs> Are you looking forward to going back to Glasgow? What's it like yeah. city these days? It's got, it has it's had a bad rap, it hasn't it? Rap. So Different periods yeah. of time. Glasgow's an interesting place. Um, so I'm actually from Edinburgh, so I probably should, you know, I could, I should, I should probably be a bit down on Glasgow. I should be a bit snooty, but actually, <laughs> they're, they're a better laugh. Um, it's a really fun city. Um, you know, the people there are. There, there's this sort of Glasgow, or Edinburgh, Glasgow, Glasgow. Yeah. There's this sort of strange culture of, you know, you may break my feeble body, but I will have one last joke. There, there's a whole city of comedians. They're, they're absolutely hilarious. Yeah. Um, what else is fun? I mean, they're, 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 it's a good place to work. It's a good place to live. Um, and it's kind of near home, you know. And, you know, I've been, up, as most military people, I've kind of been dotting all over the UK for years. And it'd be quite nice to be a bit nearer home, you know, see a bit more of my mum, get some uh, get some home cooking. Um, yeah, it'll be, like, like lots of things, it's, it's always changes and upheaval is always tricky. But uh, I think it'll be it'll be good once I get there. I think the, the other thing about Glasgow, and it's interesting, is, you know, it, every time, every Every person in, in Oxford, I said, oh, I'm going to Glasgow. They're like, oh, you know, is that not pretty rough? You're not getting, you know, you're getting, you know. And yeah, it, it's, every inner city is rough. But there's lots of people keep mentioning the stabbings, and there's been some really interesting stuff happened in Glasgow. So Glasgow used to have a huge problem in knife crime. But they did a lot of really good work over the 80s and 90s, and it's still going on now, where they stopped treating it so much as a criminal problem and started seeing it as a public health problem and started doing a lot of research into, well, why are people carrying knives? You know, why, why do the young men feel the need to have a knife in their pocket because generally because people people carry knives generally because they're frightened so why are they frightened and trying to see it more of a sort of educational and a public health problem rather than just sending loads and loads of coppers to arrest people for carrying knives just try and work more on why people were carrying knives root cause analysis root, right? completely root cause analysis and actually the rate of knife carriage in Glasgow has plummeted and therefore the rate of stabbings you know if you chat to some of my colleagues who've been there a long time they say in the 1980s if you did a shift in Glasgow Royal Infirmary Emergency Department you would, you would see four or five stabbings on a Saturday night you you know I would say it's no back to it's pretty much the same as any big city in fact probably less than you would see in sort of some of the major English cities so I mean yes you do still get people getting drunk and bopping each other but you don't see the same level of knife crime and same you know same same level of interpersonal violence as, as you used to see years ago so I think Glasgow's improved enormously over the years it's still got rough bits but you know everywhere's got rough bits like I say the uh, the comedy value of the people just makes up for it yeah, I like I I I love Scotland. Well, like I said, my old man's Glaswegian, and then yeah. got friends uh, near Edinburgh, and uh, I do love going up there. But 
It's interesting on, on the knife crime piece. It's like, it, it's sort of, the knife crime, that violent crime, mm. it's like a staple of gang culture, mm. isn't it? But with Scotland or with Glasgow, the, when it was at those extremes, it, it must have been a case of, no, it, was, it, was, it wasn't just in the gang culture, it was just, mm. that was the default... That was the default method of going, instead yeah. of going and filling someone in who you had a grievance with and fucking hitting yeah. them, the default was, no, no, go and, go and stab them. Yeah, that's frightening yeah. for it to become normalised yeah. like that. Yeah, and that's definitely a problem in a lot of the, the, the gang, you know, gang, you know, inner-city gang culture, you're right. That's how you deal with you know, some sort of you know, disrespect thing. You, 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 you deal with somebody permanently. Um, and it's pretty, pretty awful, some of the things that people do to one another. I worked in um, Washington, D.C. I did some trauma surgery over there a few years ago, and there was a thing where they, what the gangs would do is stab people in the neck with the idea of trying to paralyze them. Oh, my God. Um, which is just horrendous. Um, but the, the, the sort of the, 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 the idea you have to... You, you obviously, someone sat down in the cold light of day almost and thought, what's the most horrendous thing I can do to another person? There's, there's a few other things like that that people do, and you think, God, what is wrong with people that they would... But the thing is, I suppose it's not. I suppose people are the products of their environment, and that, that I suppose that's the other problem, isn't it? Is chronic poverty and sort of you know lack of other life choices give people the feeling that they're trapped and they've got no alternative. I don't know. It's difficult. I think the trouble is, it's a lot of this is easy to say, oh, just you know lock them up for longer. But I'm not convinced that's necessarily the answer. I think the, these, like all these problems, there are so many complex causes to it that you can't just you know one one simple solution will never fix everything. Mm. Um, what was DC like? Were you in a hospital there? Yeah. yeah. Talk to me about the, the experience <laughs> there in DC yeah. compared to here. Yeah. And America being a country where they yeah. don't have access to free national health care. Yeah. They have to pay for yeah. whatever they're going to get treatment for. Yeah. What was that like? What were the patients like? So, I mean, was there I was, a difference in attitude? I mean, I, suppose I should caveat saying I was a medical student at the time, so it's, it, I had a slightly different experience. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's weird. The big things, you, you can think that everyone speaks English, so it's kind of going to be the same, but there's a lot of strange cultural differences, like the hospital security guards have got pistols, for example. You know, you know our, our hospital security guards are great guys and girls, but, you know, <laughs> they don't have pistols. Um, so it's, it's, I suppose, that, that element of, you know, gun, gun pervasiveness, you know. I, I think in the UK, I'm trying to think back... I, I think probably in nearly 20 years in emergency medicine in the UK, I've probably seen only half a dozen shootings. Um, it's really pretty rare in the UK, whereas over there, you know, it was, it was twice a night. So there's a lot more shootings. Um, yeah, the other, I suppose the other big thing is there, you're right, medic, medical care over there is all private. So everything, everything comes through a lens of what, what people can pay for. And that's really, I mean, they're talking about the guys getting, you know, paralyzed there. The idea of being a young guy with not much money in America and being paralyzed just sounds horrendous. Because if you think about the amount of care someone who is, you know, paraplegic or quadriplegic, can't you know will will require in terms of kit equipment training therapy staff you know all of these things in the UK that just comes we just take it for granted and over there they won't get that unless they pay for it right I believe so yeah and 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 a lot of people haven't got health insurance have they yeah crazy I think there is some state funding for healthcare I don't think it's quite as simple as you 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 just get left to bleed to death in the streets I don't think it's quite that bad but yeah definitely you know if you've got chronic health problems or if you've got complex health needs excuse me, and you've got no health insurance or no money to pay for it, then, you know, people are left to manage these things on their own. I mean, I hear, you hear stories like, for example, you know, insulin, um, you know, which diabetics need to live. You know, in the UK, if you need some insulin, you, you go and see a GP or your diabetic nurse, you get a prescription and you, you take it to the pharmacy and there you go, you might have spent a couple of quid, but when you're having to spend over 100 quid a vial, 
you know, if you haven't got the money to pay for that, then you're you're, you're re really going to be in trouble. So a lot of um, you know problems with managing these chronic diseases happen because people don't have the money and they're constantly thinking about not not how am I going to stay healthy. It's about how am I going to afford to stay alive. Which I think is really, yes, it feels really sad to me. But then I suppose I've grown up in a culture where healthcare is something we just see as, you know, something normal that, you know, we all pay for one another's healthcare. And that's just a, a sort of given in our country. Uh, what was the, uh, was there a notice, noticeable difference in the, the interpersonal relationships, interaction between the, the, the patient and the healthcare professional uh, uh, compared to over here? And the reason I say is mm. over here we go in and we, we, we are getting given that for free, right? But mm. if if I think if I was going in and it was, a, I may have in the back of my mind, I'm paying for this. Mm. So I tell you what, I don't like the way you're speaking to me. I don't like the way you're treating. You yeah. could absolutely be a, a bellend, couldn't yeah, you? Could yeah, be yeah. a bellend. I think certainly in my experience that wasn't a problem. But I was doing trauma surgery, so almost everyone I'd seen had been stabbed or shot, or so it was. A, it was a okay. different interaction. But yeah, 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 I believe you know because obviously we deploy with Americans, and I've had quite a lot of you know good chats to them over the years. I mean, they're, they're interesting working with American military doctors because they still work in military hospitals, so they 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 have a very different exposure to this sort of stuff. But yeah, if you chat to the guys who work in the private sector absolutely you know the their 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 patients are paying customers and sometimes they'll come in and say this is what i want and i'm paying for it and, and if i don't get it I'm, I'm not going to be happy and i'm going to oh that's the other thing yeah they'll come in and choose the drugs yeah. right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. i mean that, that, that the idea of that is, is is mental to me but it yeah they definitely but to be fair there should always be a negotiation you know it's not just about me do, <sighs> me doctor give you patient take there's always a bit of you know you come to me with here's what here's what here's what i want and i'll say well here's what i think you need and you, you kind of meet kind of meet in the middle shouldn't you, should, you know that's how it should be it should be a negotiation a discussion not just a you know me in the white coat says you get this um but definitely it shouldn't be the other way around going yeah i see i saw this advert for this drug on telly and i really want it and i think there might be a bit more to it than that <laughs> but again that's not really a big problem in emergency medicine you, when you're sort of lying there with a broken leg you don't say oh i saw this great advert for ketamine can i have me some of that you know <laughs> No, you get your, you get your you get your leg mended and then you read yeah. the bill coming through the door, don't you? Yeah. How does get, that how does that work? Do they get billed in hospital, or does it get posted home? I, what, don't, what I, I, I genuinely don't know. I mean, I, you see occasionally you see online people posting literally the bill they've been sent for their hospital stay. Tens of thousands, tens, of pounds. hundreds of thousands of dollars for you know what we would regard as. I mean, when I was seventeen, I had my appendix taken out. Um, you know, wasn't very nice, but you know, it was done and dusted. Yeah, over there, you you, know, you get your appendix taken out, and three days later, you got this colossal bill if you haven't got a way to pay for it. I mean, I believe again, I'm, I'm not an expert, but I believe it's quite a common cause of bankruptcy. Is you know, people get medical bills they just can't pay, um, and people lose their houses over it, and, and all sorts. It's uh, I suppose it's it, it's a it's a it's a cultural thing, isn't it? We've decided as a society that healthcare is something that we're all gonna we're all gonna club together to to fund so that no one. You know, no one should feel that they can't get the health care they need. Uh, it's not a perfect system, but I think it's, you know, it's a lot better than the alternatives. be interesting to see how it changes. Here? Mm. Why, why would it? Well, you do don't see a lot, say things a lot like that. Why would it change? Don't <laughs> I don't think it's going to change completely, but I think you do see elements of, there are elements of private sector involvement in more of the health system than there have been. And that's been coming in slowly over the last 20 odd years. Some of it's good, actually. I mean, some of it does give people better choice and better options but, example um for example so um an example would be i, I worked in um, sunderland hospital uh, i did intensive care up there and they contracted in their uh, x-ray reporting system so if i if i as, as the intensive care doctor if i organized a, a ct scan in, at two o'clock in the morning it wouldn't be re you know rather than ringing in one of the hospital radiologists at two o'clock in the morning to, to tell me what the scan showed they would put it onto a 
web server and send it to Australia, where there was a private company that had an Australian radiologist who was up and anyway was just reporting. He would he would report the scan and then tell me what it showed. So actually, it was probably more efficient because it meant that the the Sunderland radiologists weren't being woken up at two o'clock in the morning, so they could do more during the day. So it was probably a more efficient use of of resources and time. So that sort of stuff I thought was quite positive, but equally sometimes. If, as you say, if you, if you go too far down that road, you end up with it being about profit, not patience, and that's 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 the point where I would be less happy. And that's the challenge they've got in the states. They were on about, I mean, the Obamacare is the famous one, isn't it? Yeah. But they, even if they, they they're having to wrestle in 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 order to bring something like that in, something like what we've got in, because hmm. Canada have got national healthcare, right? They, I, th I believe, and again, you're you're no expert here, so I'm happy to be uh, co corrected. But I believe they have a combination of things. So, so partly private, partly. So I think you pay a proportion of the costs yourself if you can. But I think there is more support. If you've got mm -hmm. no money, for example, I believe that the, the state does help you. And the Americans do have some of it, but it's definitely not as as comprehensive as it is elsewhere. But I think so. I think the Canadians do have. A, a sort of hybrid model and I think that's also what you get in a lot of European places a lot of European countries have a partially state partially privately funded system um, I don't know I, I've never worked in it so I don't know if it's better mm. or not they're trying to well it doesn't sound like it is I mean you, you just I mean just looking at it like the national so the national stress levels mm. of an average in America, must, in America would mm. be they, well, they would be less if they didn't have to worry about paying for the, for the medical bills. Just some, yeah. I look at it like at, at yeah. that high level. It's like yeah. just that little one little aspect of it. But um, if they ever wanted to, to try and switch to a model like what we've got or other countries have got, as you alluded to there, the profit they are they are wrestling against big, big, big political players, huge political players, and also a huge cultural thing. You know, I think it's not just it's not just about politics. You know, it is about culture. You know, I think the Americans have very much sort of individual culture than we do so they would you know there is a thing about you know they would rather sort of stand or fall on their own you know that, that rugged you know western individualism thing that means that it's more attractive to them the idea that they'll do or not do by themselves so i don't know that it's not just it's not just about and you know you're right they would have to make a sort of decision as a society that they're going to have to pay a lot more tax as a group to, to fund mm -hmm. all this health care and it would also change the way they do health care i mean they they spend a fortune on health care um you know they spend more than anybody else per head of population but it's sort of unevenly spread and in some ways probably not most efficiently used and as you alluded to it's about people because it's a private business, people do what, what brings in the money. So, you know, when I worked in the States, for example, they were very much keen to do imaging, um, even with the risks that involved, because the risk of missing something was, was seen as unacceptable. Uh, because if you got sued for missing something, you, you, couldn't, you couldn't afford to defend it. Whereas I think we've been slightly protected from that in the UK. You know, generally we, we have a slightly more realistic attitude. Because the trouble, the trouble with medicine is everything's risk. You know, there's no, there's no safe there is no safe path there's no easy path everything involves balancing risks of investigation risks of not investigating it's all really you know that's why as i said earlier it should be a negotiation it should be about what the patient wants what we think is is appropriate and sort of meeting and for most things you meet in the middle about you know you make a plan together um and it's a lot easier to have that negotiation if people aren't necessarily sweating about how you know the doctor for, for, for the doctor you know, i'm not sweating about you know the more scans i do the more i get paid therefore there's an incentive to me to do that and the patient's not sweating thinking the more scans i get the more i have to pay for therefore i don't want the scan you know it, it, there's a tension there that's sort of reduced removed from our system 
uh, which I think uh, I don't know. It's it's never going to be perfect, but I I find the conversations a lot easier when when it's clear that I've got no you know I I, I don't get paid anymore for organising a scan or doing anything else. I you know, I get paid the same, so I've no vested interest in it. My job is to use the resources as efficiently as I can for for all the patients in front of me. Yeah, it's a good point. It's like that the pharmaceuticals interest in over in, in the states in in. Uh, bringing on GPs on the side, buttering up GPs, so a GP is more inclined to prescribe this drug because yep. they'll get a financial incentive yeah. for providing this drug over yeah. a competitor, this drug. Yeah. When And then that has to, in a lot of cases, compromise the, the GP's sort of ethical yeah. ethical moral standing and how they're treating a, yeah. a patient you know it must be incredibly uh, it's tough. yeah it's, i think so i mean I, th I think i think your people will claim it doesn't affect the decision making but I, I cannot believe it doesn't you know if you know that you're going to get an extra hundred quid in your pocket for choosing one over and subconsciously even if you think it's not i mean so my, my, my dad's a retired gp and, and the, the, the system's changed but i can remember the the drug reps used to come around and they would give little toys and a pen it was all you know you know we loved it as kids because we got like free, free toys and it was really cool but even that's gone now you don't even get free pens from drug reps which is probably right, actually. Mm. I think, you know, even even little things like a pen, you know, if you're carrying around a pen with a drug name on it in your pocket, subconsciously, every time you write something, you're thinking about it. So, you know, I think actually, whilst it's a shame that I don't have to pay for my own pens, um, you know, I think I can probably, I, could, I can probably suck that up uh, for the, 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 be the, the fact that I know that my decision making is, I mean, I suppose, again, I work in a world where I don't prescribe anything expensive, you know, everything I do is uh, is fairly cheap and fairly, you know, uh, uh, there's no, there's not really much complicated new new medicines most of my most of the learning in our world is about how you make decisions and how you implement the, the stuff that we do rather than necessarily brand new drugs but it does happen every now and again mm. we need to start wrapping it up what have we uh, okay. what have we not covered that you want to cover oh i'm trying to think now I think we've covered most of the stuff that I think is of, of yeah, interest. Yeah, yeah, uh, the, 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 we went down a bit of a rabbit hole on the America stuff, but that was, uh, yeah, no, but, it, but, it was but it was interesting. It's uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's such a different system. Um, no, I mean, th I think I say, well, like I said before we chatted. I mean, the, th the thing I wanted to sort of chat about was about how you know where military, where the secondary healthcare, you know, the hospital specialists in the military are, what we're doing, and you know, I think mostly to sort of make sure that people know and understand that we are still there, even in the, the post-Afghan era, that, you know, if, if people need us, we're, we're still there for them, uh, even though most of the time we're in the NHS, you know, but that's good, you know, we're keeping ourselves fresh, current, and, and able to give give the soldiers, sailors, and airmen the, the care that they deserve. Hopefully they'll never need it, you know, like I said, uh, ideally you want your medics to be sat around arguing about who's got the best gadget for brewing coffee, that's, that's exactly, <laughs> you know, when we're deployed, that's definitely, we do spend a lot of time on coffee, um, but that's fine, that's what you want us doing, because, you know, uh, ideally we'll, we'll go away, drink a lot of coffee, not do much else, and come home again, but we're, we're there if we're needed. Yeah. Yeah, 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 mate. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've learned a lot. Oh, <laughs> I've learned good. a lot. In this That's way. all right. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been it's been a good chat. No, it's it's, been, right, been, it's been, right. been good to come up. Um, how do people get hold of you? When I get hold of you. Uh, I'm on Twitter. Um, I think it's Ross underscore Moy. So you can go go through. That's probably the easiest way if people want to want to look me up there that way. Um, and yeah, I say hopefully you'll never see me professionally. That would be. Uh, <laughs> And uh, good luck with the move to Scott to Glasgow. Good luck in the job. Thank you very much. Cool. And uh, next time you're back down, we'll get a beer. Sounds good. Look forward to it. Cool. Thanks. My pleasure. That's it. Thank you for listening. A reminder of the sponsors of the podcast today. Monkey Mountaineering, 
Monkey Mansioneering, they organize, can organize, do organize and conduct amazing treks and trips and expeditions, not just in the UK, but overseas as well. South America, Asia, Africa, all over the place. Headed up by a ex-military guy, good guy, called Sam Marshall, who's got decades of experience in mountaineering. Their website is monkeymountaineering.com. And uh, on Instagram, they are at Monkey Mountaineering. Also sponsored the podcast today were DevSoc, the development society, community of people who want to improve themselves and be better than they were yesterday. Definitely check them out. Go onto their website. I highly recommend this, right? Go onto their website, thedevelopmentsociety.co.uk and sign up for their infamous Daily Waves newsletter. And oh, is that a plane? Can you? They've got a plane flying overhead while I'm, while I'm talking. And uh, and definitely get them on Instagram uh, at the Development Society. Rugby for Heroes. We're also sponsoring the podcast today. They have got an event coming up. It is on the 26th of June at Old Lemontonians RSC. It's going to be free to attend. Okay, it's going to be a fundraising event. It's not ticketed. You can just rock up in the day. So why don't you do it? Rock up in the day. I'll see you there. Me and a bunch of other podcast guests. At the Rugby for Heroes Festival, 26th of June, 2021. It's going to be a biggie. And finally, sponsoring the podcast today with the Aardvark Group, who have been, since 1982, deploying technical, in, deploying, creating and deploying technical innovations to help rid the world of unexploded ordnance and unexploded mines, landmines, personnel mines, anti-tank mines. Aardvark.group for Aardvark. Or search them on social media, The Aardvark Group. Thank you to the sponsors. Thank you to you for listening. If you're listening on uh, Apple Podcasts or anything like that, leave me a, a review. If you fancy watching the podcast, you can find it on YouTube. And if you want to get all the podcasts early before anyone else, then simply go to patreon.com forward slash HK Podcasts and become a patron. Easy peasy. Till next time. <laughs>